Welcome back to the Stronger by Science podcast. My name is Eric Trexler, and I am your one and only host for today's episode. Uh, If you watched the show last week, that was a solo episode as well. Of course, the advertisers are beating down my door trying to get a piece of the show. Uh, The fan mail is absolutely pouring in. But some people have been wondering, what's up with the solo shows? Uh, People have even been speculating that perhaps the holidays uh, have made it logistically difficult to coordinate schedules, and maybe that's why I've been doing some shows solo rather than having a co-host. But nonetheless, I want to put some of these rumors to rest, and I want to come clean about Greg's absence in this show and the prior show. So as many of our listeners know, uh, many months back, Greg spearheaded an effort to unionize all of the Stronger by Science podcast co-hosts, both the present and former Stronger by Science podcast co-hosts. So uh, during that effort, uh, I tried to undermine that unionization through all possible legal channels and some other channels as well. Uh, Nonetheless, my efforts uh, to undermine that uh, process were ultimately ineffective and that union did form. And that brings us to where we are today. Uh, the Stronger by Science podcast co-host Union wants family contact to be reinstated. Uh, one of the policies of this show, which is a, an industry standard policy, is that if you co-host a podcast, you uh, really shouldn't be contacting friends or family members. Uh, and, and the reason for that is in order to protect the show quality and the focus of the show, we want to make sure that everybody is really all in on the production. So. Uh, naturally, we, we tell people, you know, you, you have to cut off contact with family and friends. And like I said, that that's an industry standard. So now that this union is meddling in all of our business, uh, they want family contact to be reinstated. Uh, they might also want friend contact to be reinstated, but it was really unclear in, in the communications that I got. So um, basically, the bottom line is that I refuse to be taken advantage of. Uh, So those negotiations are at a standstill, and I really don't see them budging much uh, in the near future. So the show must go on. Uh, Today will be another solo episode, and we're going to be talking about popular diets and some common misconceptions in nutrition. This is part one of a two-part episode where we're really going to look at a, a number of popular diets and some really popular nutrition myths. And this is all part of this bigger ongoing series of, uh, of episodes where we're talking about uh, some really popular topics in nutrition. You know, the, the new year is coming up. You know, we're getting to the final days of December here. People are really strategically thinking about their diet, their nutrition, and what they want to do with their diet in the new year. So it's a really great opportunity to revisit some of these popular topics and uh, and to discuss them in a high level of detail. So that's what we'll be doing for today's episode. But before we dive into that content, uh, if you like the show and you'd like to support it, there are many ways you can do that. Of course, you can like, rate, or subscribe wherever you get podcasts. You can join our email newsletter at strongerbyscience.com newsletter. Uh, We send out research updates every single Wednesday, which are very concise, very practical updates to help you with your exercise and nutrition goals. Uh, If you're interested in one-on-one virtual coaching, we do offer that at Stronger by Science. We have a very talented team of coaches. You can learn more about that at strongerbyscience.com slash coaching. 
If you want to get a discount on your supplements, you can do that at BulkSupplements.com. We have a code, which is SBSPOD or SBSPOD. If you enter that code at checkout, you get a 5% discount on your entire order. Of course, you could subscribe to the Mass Research Review, which we publish every single month to keep you updated with the newest research in exercise and nutrition. And you could also check out Macrofactor. That is the diet app that Greg and I co-developed along with an extremely talented team of colleagues. Uh, It's a really fantastic nutrition app, and it does come with a free trial. So you can try it out, see if you like it before you actually pay for the product. Now, let's get into some of this nutrition content. Like I said, I'm going to be going through some really popular diets and some popular myths in the nutrition world, and I'm going to be discussing them in the most unbiased way I can. And what I mean by that is this isn't going to be one of those uh, podcasts where I just debunk things and, and, uh, you know, kind of rant about things in a vitriolic manner. I want to talk about these diets and say, okay, I don't like this diet, but here are some of the pros of this diet, some of the advantages. Here are the cons, and here's why the cons outweigh the pros. Uh, When it comes to myths and misconceptions, I want to talk about any little granules of truth that might be underneath the surface, and I want to talk about why those myths are so compelling, why they seem to be so so convincing. So uh, it's going to, I'm going to try to thread that needle where I I will discuss some things that I, I think are, uh, you know, generally misguided, but I'm going to try to be fair about it and say what the pros and cons are for each thing. Now, before we get into those popular diets, I do want to provide a very brief refresher. So a few episodes ago, I talked a little bit about how we even begin to describe a healthy diet or, or more appropriately, a healthy eating pattern. You know, I don't like to rely too much on naming this diet versus that diet. I like to talk more broadly about what eating patterns seem to be compatible with good health and good performance. And so in that episode, I talked about two sets of criteria. There's the healthy diet indicator criteria from 2015, and then an updated set of healthy diet indicator criteria from 2020. And I want to briefly list what some of these criteria are. And again, these are things that would generally describe a dietary pattern that is compatible with supporting good health. So first of all, eating plenty of fruits and vegetables, keeping total fat to less than 30% of total energy, keeping saturated fat to less than 10% of total energy, keeping polyunsaturated fats between 6 and 11% of total energy, keeping free sugars and kind of added sugars, you could say, to less than 10% of total energy, trying to get at least 25 grams of fiber a day, and trying to get at least 3.5 grams of sodium per day. Now, some of those, you know, they're not always going to be perfect in every single context, right? There, You can absolutely have a suitable diet for you, that has more than 30% of calories coming from fat, but those are the healthy diet indicator criteria that kind of start as our starting point. You know, they serve as our starting point for identifying health health supporting dietary patterns. Now, those were updated in 2020 and there were a couple additions or changes to to point out. Uh, in In 2020, in that version, 
They mentioned specifically try to get more beans and legumes into the diet, try to get nuts and seeds into the diet, try to get some whole grains into the diet, try to limit dietary sodium to less than two grams a day, uh, try to minimize the intake of processed meat, and try to consume unprocessed red meat in moderation. So it's not to say you can't have any red meat, but red meat in moderation. Again, there are certain contexts where some of these uh, criteria are less um, less relevant or less suitable. So sodium is one that comes to mind. Um, if you're someone whose blood pressure is in the normal range, you do a ton of exercise in a hot environment, you're sweating like crazy on a regular basis, uh, you probably will uh, thrive on a diet where sodium does exceed two grams a day. So I don't want to suggest that these criteria are always perfect for all individuals, but I do think they offer a decent starting point for what we are looking for in a healthy dietary pattern. And the reason I do this refresher is as we go through some of these popular diets, you're going to be able to keep those in the back of your mind and say, okay, this diet seems like it's really pushing us away from several of those criteria, which would lead us to believe this diet, probably not the best diet for a large percentage of individuals. So let's dive in here. First, I want to talk about low-carb diets. And of course, this is a very broad category. Uh, it would include other diets within it. So the zone diet is a popular diet that you could call a low-carb approach. The South Beach diet is a popular diet that you could call a low-carb approach. The South Beach diet, I haven't heard much about it in a while. Um, but, you know, several years ago, it, it, it was uh, quite popular. So when we talk about low-carb diets... We're usually talking about a diet where carbohydrate is making up less than 35 or less than 40% of total energy. So, um, you know, a lot of times if you look at common dietary recommendations, they might say to have 45 to 65% of your calories coming from carbohydrate. Low-carb diets could broadly refer to basically anything below that. Sometimes it gets really low and you'll see carb, carb intakes that are well below 35% of total energy, but we're starting very broad here and, and talking about low-carb diets in the most general sense possible. Now, there are pros uh, associated or, or benefits or advantages that you could associate with low-carb diet approaches. Uh, personally, I think that low-carb diets are a very sensible way to reduce calories, especially for people who are not doing a lot of exercise. Um, people who are doing a ton of high-intensity exercise probably are not going to thrive on a low-carb diet. They probably need to make sure they're fueling their exercise appropriately. But for, for most folks who are not doing a ton of high-intensity exercise, a low-carb diet is a very sensible approach, a very suitable approach for their needs. Um, so if you're going to be re re removing calories from the diet, carbohydrate uh, is one place where you could remove a pretty substantial portion of calories from the diet. And, and as long as you're not doing a ton of high intensity exercise, probably not going to have massive downsides within reason. Um, and another advantage here with low carb diets is most of the time you're going to see people doing low carbs in conjunction with high protein. And when people do this low carb, high protein approach, they're usually quite satisfied with their diet, uh, even when calories are relatively low. And those types of diets do a pretty good job of keeping hunger at bay. So like I said, for a lot of people, a low-carb approach can be a very suitable way 
to initiate a lower calorie diet if they're pursuing a fat loss goal, for example. Um, when it comes to the downsides of low carb approaches, uh, there was a recent meta-analysis that linked uh, you know, pretty excessive carb restriction to lower testosterone levels, particularly when energy intake was low and protein intake was very high. Um, that is a thing that is observed in the literature, but I'm not overly concerned about that personally. Um, I'm not really a big fan of micromanaging testosterone levels. Uh, if you're just kind of interested in losing some fat and you lower your ca your uh, your calories and your carbohydrate a little bit, I don't expect a meaningful impact on testosterone levels. Um, but the more pertinent downside of carb restriction, like I mentioned, is if you're doing a bunch of glycolytic activity, if you're doing high intensity exercise or very high volumes of even moderate intensity exercise, you might find yourself in a situation where you are under fueling the physical activity that you're doing, and there could be some unfavorable consequences associated with that. Now, when it comes to popular applications and some common misconceptions, like I said, the zone diet is a type of low-carb diet, which does tend to be relatively high in protein as well. The downside with the zone diet, uh, it's fine. It's, you know, there's nothing about the zone diet that jumps off the page as being totally dangerous or deleterious or anything like that. But overall, it just has some rules and restrictions and guidelines that are a little bit more restrictive than necessary. There are some sacrifices required to adhere to the diet that really aren't giving a lot of, of payout. You know, you, you are making these sacrifices and you're not really getting much from making them. So whenever we look at a dietary pattern that requires major sacrifices that have disproportionately low payoff, I usually avoid those dietary approaches because we're making these massive sacrifices that can meaningfully impact flexibility, sustainability, quality of life, and we're just not getting much for it, okay? So the zone diet, like I said, overall, not the worst diet in the world, but there are some rules and guidelines that if you're trying to follow them to a T, uh, it just makes the diet a little bit harder than it needs to be. So if you were someone who was saying, yeah, I like the general macronutrient breakdown of the zone diet, I like the general recommendation for meal frequency, but I'm not going to beat myself up about the details. I actually think it ends up being a fairly sensible approach. Now, the South Beach diet is another low-carb diet plan, and it tends to work in phases. And the reason I bring that up is I would not advocate for the South Beach diet personally. The first phase is a bit too extreme for my liking. I've seen some claims that, you know, if you do phase one over the first two weeks, you can expect to lose like eight to 13 pounds. That's way more restrictive than I would advocate. Um, and just like I mentioned previously with the South Beach diet, there are a number of guidelines um, associated with the diet that are just way more restrictive than I would consider necessary. So I think you can do a really great low-carb diet without locking yourself into the zone diet or the South Beach diet or anything that is so formal with so many different guidelines and restrictions. Um, when it comes to misconceptions in the low-carb diet world, uh, there are a couple to highlight. One is that a lot of folks who advocate on behalf of low-carb diets, they tend to get really hung up on glycemic index values. Now, 
10 years ago, this was very prevalent. Nowadays, people are moving away from it for good reason. Um, the glycemic index is a very flawed metric. I've mentioned it on the podcast before, um, but basically with the glycemic index, they are looking at uh, the immediate, like, uh, usually they're looking over a two-hour period, but they're looking at the immediate blood glucose response to ingestion of a given serving of that food. So usually it, 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 they'll, they'll standardize. If they're going to try to test the glycemic index value for carrots, for example, they would provide a serving that would yield usually about 50 grams of available uh, carbohydrate you know, you'd eat however many carrots you have to eat to get to that 50 gram kind of standardized dose. Uh, and then they would look at the area under the curve of that glucose response. They would basically look at the the blood glucose excursion, you know, the way that blood glucose goes up and down after the ingestion of that food. And so what they would do is they would take the area under curve of that, um, of that blood glucose response uh, multiply it and end up getting this glycemic index value. Um, so what they were trying to do with this, uh, or, or what ends up happening with glycemic index values is you are necessarily penalizing foods that cause a quicker blood glucose response. You know, when, when you're kind of re refining the time window to that immediate phase, you're just kind of looking at what foods are immediately going to cause a blood glucose response and how large is that blood glucose response? So sometimes you do find foods that have surprisingly high glycemic index values, but but they're foods that you would never associate with, uh, you know, increasing one's predisposition to diabetes or anything like that. So the shortcomings of the glycemic index are multifaceted. First of all, it's measured uh, with a set number of net carbs. But that ignores, uh, you know, the serving size that a person would typically eat. Um, you know, so instead of saying, hey, how many pretzels would you eat in a serving versus carrots? Instead of kind of baking that into the metric, they standardize glycemic index to have a certain amount of net carbohydrate in a way that kind of removes the relevance of this value from the way the food is typically consumed. Uh, another, another thing along those lines the relevance of glycemic index is really, um, really diminished when you consider the fact that usually glycemic index is going to be measured when you're eating a single food after an overnight fast. So instead of consuming a food within a, a more typical dietary pattern, maybe it's a food that you normally have for lunch and you typically have it with one or two other foods that go with it, we're kind of removing the food from its context we're removing the food from the typical serving size. And so we're really losing a lot of diet-specific relevance when we look at a glycemic index value. And then another shortcoming is that uh, the glycemic index really just doesn't tell you much about the overall quality of the food. You're not, you're not understanding what kind of micronutrients are associated with the food. Um, you know, th there are a lot of shortcomings there as well. So if I'm looking at evaluating a carbohydrate source and trying to determine, is this a really valuable carbohydrate source or perhaps a less valuable kind of extraneous carbohydrate source in my diet, uh, I'm going to look at a number of things, but I'm not going to look at, at the glycemic index. I'm going to look at the vitamin and mineral, mineral content. I'm going to look at the fiber content, the energy density, uh, 
how well I tolerate it in terms of gastrointestinal comfort, uh, palatability, just whether or not I enjoy the food, uh, the convenience of the food in terms of cooking it, storing it, things like that, and even the cost of the food. You know, there, there are a number of practical things that we should consider when we're determining what type of carbohydrate foods we want to include in our diet. And ultimately, because of all those shortcomings I listed, glycemic index really should not be high on the list and in many cases really shouldn't be on the list at all. Uh, there is one caveat. Um, you know, some people will say, I don't use glycemic index, but I do use glycemic load because glycemic load actually accounts for the typical serving size of a food that is consumed rather than standardizing to a particular number of net carbs. So the glycemic load is an improvement compared to glycemic index, but it still does share a number of the shortcomings that I mentioned previously. Uh, so that's one caveat I want to mention. A second caveat is, you know, it's very possible that you have uh, some type of challenge related to glycemic control. So perhaps you have insulin resistance, maybe you have uh, a particular form of diabetes. It's very possible that you are working with a medical professional to manage your blood glucose responses to individual meals. If that is the case, you should absolutely trust the advice that you're getting from a medical professional, not me, some dude talking on a podcast, okay? So if you're managing a medical condition that is uh, that pertains to glycemic control, there might be some instances where you do want to use glycemic load or glycemic index you want to work with a medical professional to figure out how you should be managing your blood glucose excursions after eating a particular food or a particular meal. Um, now, along these lines, when we talk about blood glucose excursions, back in the day, people would just say, what's the glycemic index value? You know, if that value is high, I'm going to avoid it. If the value is low, that's all good. Uh, more recently, uh, people who embrace low-carb diets are getting into the use of continuous glucose monitors. And these are uh, medical devices that monitor your blood glucose levels on a continuous basis, as you probably figured out from, uh, from the name. Uh, I am not really on board with widespread use of these continuous glucose monitors within the fitness world. Um, and there are multiple reasons for that. First of all, Looking through the data that are currently available, looking through the research, I'm really not impressed about the, or I'm not impressed by the validity and the reliability data for these devices, whether we're talking about day-to-day -day, uh, comparisons, person-to-person -person comparisons, or device-to-device -device comparisons. I'm not seeing a level of consistency, reliability, validity that I would hope for if I were going to implement this type of device in a meaningful way. I know for a lot of folks who are managing, you know, diabetes, insulin resistance, you know, these devices can be very helpful. It's kind of the best available thing in certain contexts. I definitely understand that. I'm not a medical professional. I, I'm not someone who would be advising someone on how to use a continuous glucose monitor in order to manage a glycemic control issue or you know, a diabetes diagnosis or anything like that. Um, but in terms of people who are trying to really micromanage these glucose excursions that are within the normal range, uh, I just don't think these devices have the validity and reliability that we would want in order to really put that into action. Uh, another issue that I have with these devices 
it's not really an issue with the devices, but an issue with the way they're being applied and with the way that their data are being interpreted within the fitness world. Uh, some people are adopting interpreta- interpretations of the uh, the glucose excursion data that they're getting from these devices, and they're they're interpreting the information in a way that inevitably is leading them toward ketogenic diets, um, <laughs> like in a hundred percent of cases. So basically, what they're doing is they are starting out and just kind of looking at, okay, how does my blood glucose respond to this meal versus that meal? And what they're finding is, you know, okay, I'm getting lower, uh, you know, excursions, smaller excursions, lower uh, peak glucose responses when I'm erring toward these meals that are higher in fat and lower in carbohydrate. So people are finding over time that they're just kind of drifting toward a ketogenic diet if they're letting the continuous glucose monitor call the shots. And it's not because they're experiencing any unfavorable effects from these normal blood glucose excursions. They're just trying to basically go for the lowest score possible, um, which is not something that I think is really rooted in any sound uh, health-related data. You know, there's no reason to believe that going lower than a normal glucose excursion is going to have meaningful health benefits for an otherwise healthy individual. So we're seeing that people are just kind of going for the lowest score possible, and now they're drifting toward meals that are more compatible with a ketogenic diet. They're drifting toward uh, a ketogenic diet in general because of that meal-to-meal fluctuation in the way that they're managing their food choices. And then what they're finding is that they're adhering to a ketogenic diet for an extended period of time. And after you've been doing that for a while, uh, your body responds to the way you eat. Um, And so if you've been on a ketogenic diet for a while, uh, a lot of the enzymatic machinery that helps you clear blood glucose after a high-carbohydrate meal, uh, a lot of that enzymatic machinery is temporarily lost. You can get it back by adopt, you know, moving back to a more moderate macronutrient distribution. But what people are finding is that once they're, you know, the, the continuous glucose monitor data is kind of nudging them toward a ketogenic diet. And then once they're on that ketogenic diet for a while, if they do have a high carb meal, uh, you know, the blood glucose response is just off the charts. And that's because they've been on a ketogenic diet for so long. So it creates this kind of self-reinforcing mechanism where you are nudged toward a ketogenic diet, and then you are very strongly encouraged to stay on that ketogenic diet. And so for a lot of folks who who ask me like, hey, I'm thinking about using a continuous glucose monitor, uh, you know, I, I'm going to kind of let it dictate how I eat. I usually tell people like, hey, if, if that's what you want to do, just kind of con- just like cut straight to the punchline, you know, just go to the finish here. Uh, and, and go right to the part where you're just on a ketogenic diet. Because if you do follow that process, more likely than not, it's just going to tell you, hey, you know, if you're on a ketogenic diet, you're not going to have these normal blood glucose excursions. So, uh, yeah, like I said, most people who are who reach out to me and express interest, I just say, hey, I can tell you where this ends. It's probably going to end with you being on a diet that is either ketogenic or very close to ketogenic. So if you want to do that, just go straight to straight to it. You know, you don't have to kind of go through this process of letting the device kind of slowly push you there. So moving on, we've talked a little bit about low carb diets in general. Like I said, very sensible if you're taking a very moderate approach and you're doing it with a lot of flexibility in terms of your food choices. 
There are some less flexible applications that I would not advise. And there are also some myths uh, associated with low-carb diets that you want to be wary of. You want to keep an eye out for them. Uh, now, moving on, gluten-free diet. Um, this is going to be pretty quick because it got really popular a few years back, and I think the popularity is waning a bit. Um, in terms of the pros of adopting a gluten-free diet, uh, on the bright side, if you reduce the gluten content of your diet, from a nutritional perspective, you're probably not missing out on much. Um, you're going to be, you know, if you're omitting foods with a lot of gluten, it, it's very unlikely that you're going to be missing out on really, really important critical micronutrients that you couldn't get elsewhere. Um, and, and you can still uh, achieve a really broad range of macronutrient distributions, even if you cut gluten out of your diet. Now, you might notice that your carb intake goes down, uh, but there are gluten-free carb sources that you could, you know, you, you could certainly be on a high carb diet that, that doesn't contain gluten. Um, when it comes to, oh, and I should also mention uh, another positive element. Some people, when they adopt a gluten-free diet, they start to cut out a lot of high carb foods. They start to cut out a lot of foods with high energy density and they also start to cut out a lot of processed foods with high energy density, a lot of foods that are very snackable. And so a lot of folks, when they do a, a gluten-free diet, they notice that they start to lose some weight and their calorie intake goes down without really intentionally trying to lose weight or cut calories. Um, and so that uh, could be an unintended benefit depending on what your goals are. And what's interesting about that is it reinforces an idea, unfortunately, kind of reinforces a myth that gluten-free diets cause weight loss because gluten is bad. Um, you know, basically, it creates a scenario where people say, man, that gluten must have been terrible for me because once I cut it out, I started losing weight, I started feeling great, etc. In reality, a lot of that weight loss that, that is observed when people adopt a gluten-free diet just because they're cutting out some of these energy-dense foods that they typically snack on. Now, some of the cons with a gluten-free diet. I mentioned that nutritionally, you're not missing out on much when you cut out gluten. Uh, but in terms of just uh, having flexibility with your food choices, you are missing out. Uh, there are a lot of really popular foods that people love to eat in, in many regions of the world that, that do contain a great deal of gluten. So a lot of folks... When they adopt a gluten-free diet, they notice that a lot of their favorite foods are now off the menu. So you might not be missing much nutritionally, but you might be missing a lot in terms of just having a flexible diet that you really enjoy. Um, and another con I should mention here is people often are just making a making a restriction that isn't necessary. You know, there are a lot of folks who adopt a gluten-free diet expecting that, you know, simply by removing gluten from their diet, they're going to cause a bunch of really positive health effects. In many cases, they will not experience any direct benefit from avoiding gluten. So uh, whether you view that as a downside is kind of a, a matter of perspective, but a lot of folks are making a sacrifice that ultimately is not producing the outcome that they were hoping for. Uh, now, things I want to address when it comes to gluten-free diets if you have celiac disease, absolutely, you want to avoid gluten. And of course, you want to work with medical professionals to figure out how to put together a diet that is going to be most suitable for your medical condition. Uh, 
for a while there, there were a lot of folks talking about something called non-celiac gluten sensitivity. This got really popular. There was some initial research indicating that, you know, there were these people who did not have celiac disease. They also were not allergic to wheat, but there were, there were some very small uh, initial studies indicating that these individuals were noticing a lot of positive changes when they cut gluten out of their diet. Specifically, um, they were noticing a reduction of unfavorable gastrointestinal symptoms when they cut gluten out of their diet. So there seemed to be this group of folks, this percentage of the population, who wasn't allergic to wheat and did not have celiac disease, but nonetheless, it appeared that gluten was causing some gastrointestinal distress for them. And if they remove gluten from their diet, you know, of, of course, that would uh, cease. Th those symptoms would stop. Um, more recent research kind of, uh, you know, that people continued down that line of research. More recent evidence has suggested that what was initially called gluten sensitivity might be more broadly characterized as a sensitivity to FODMAPs. Um, and so, these are um, undigestible or partially digestible carbohydrates that, um, you know, basically what they found in some of these follow-up studies is they thought that removing gluten was causing um, these gastrointestinal symptoms to dissipate, when in reality it was the removal of FODMAPs that were present in some of these uh, gluten-containing foods. And so... The last I checked in on this literature, it's been a while since I dug back into the literature, but last I checked, there seemed to be uh, a, a growing consensus that non-celiac gluten sensitivity was most commonly actually a FODMAP sensitivity. Um, and so in that case, uh, you might find that a gluten-free diet does uh, eat, cause some of those symptoms to reduce in frequency or severity some of those gastrointestinal symptoms. Um, but in many cases, it seems that what's really happening is it's not reducing gluten that is causing the effect. It's actually just reducing FODMAPs in the diet. Now, that gets really tricky uh, because FODMAPs are kind of everywhere. If you just Google low FODMAP diet and you get an idea of what foods you're supposed to avoid on a low FODMAP diet, you will quickly find that it is a very, very restrictive diet. And so usually what people do is if they notice that they have a FODMAP sensitivity of some type is they will start out with a low FODMAP diet, kind of an elimination diet of saying, hey, I'm sick of these gastrointestinal symptoms, I'm sick of feeling like crap. I'm going to do a low FODMAP diet first. And then what they do is they gradually reintroduce some of these FODMAP containing foods uh, one or two at a time. They kind of slowly do this gradual process of reintroduction and they figure out which foods seem to cause symptoms and which foods do not. Uh, and so when people look at a low FODMAP diet, their first uh, their first impression is, this sucks. Like, I, I don't know if I can sustain a low FODMAP diet for, for months or years on end. And fortunately, that is not the typical use case. In most cases, a low FODMAP diet is initially adopted as an elimination diet, and then FODMAP-containing food sources are introduced very systematically so that a person can identify which foods seem to cause uh, issues for them. And you know, I, I've never considered myself someone who has a, broadly speaking, a FODMAP sensitivity, 
But there are some foods that do contain FODMAPs, like very specific food sources that when I eat them, I seem to just have some minor stomach discomfort. So there's nothing at all wrong with, you know, really mindfully revisiting your food intakes and figuring out what foods seem to really sit well for you and what foods don't. There's nothing wrong with that. So when someone tells me they're on a gluten-free diet, I don't immediately dismiss that and say, oh, you got swept up in a fad diet. You have no idea what you're doing. I feel bad for you because you're, you've been led so far astray. That, that's genuinely not my first um, reaction. Uh, my first reaction is, hey, good for them. They started to really uh, take a proactive approach to their nutrition. They started to make some observations about what foods work for them what foods don't, and they tailored their diet accordingly. So I, I, I really, um, I think it's really unfortunate that, you know, gluten-free diets became a bit of a fad diet. Some people started adopting them uh, really without a good justification for adopting them. And for a lot of folks who respond quite well to gluten-free diets or, you know, removal of certain FODMAPs from their diet, unfortunately, it puts them in a position where it looks like they're you know, just jumping on the bandwagon of some fad diet. Um, in reality, it's really important to, to take note of how different foods seem to impact you. And of course, you should always alter your diet in a way that is suitable for making you feel your best and, and helping you be your healthiest. Um, so I did mention in that section things like celiac disease and certain food sensitivities. Once again, if you believe you're experiencing any kind of medical symptoms or clinical symptoms, your first uh, move should be to get with a medical professional so you can talk through that and rule out serious medical conditions. And then you can work with them to figure out how you might consider adjusting your diet uh, in a way that's appropriate for you and your medical circumstances. Now, moving on, um, I want to just broadly address the concept of eating clean. So eating clean or consuming only clean foods, um, it's kind of a vague term Broadly speaking, um, it, it involves consuming what we might call whole foods that are minimally processed. And generally speaking, talking about foods that are typically embraced by bodybuilder types, people who, who kind of self-identify as health nuts. So like, you know, you, you're going to see a lot of folks who, who say that they eat clean. You're going to see them avoid gluten, avoid certain grain products or dairy products sometimes. They're usually going to be the folks who say like, hey, broccoli, chicken breast, lean proteins, um, you know, starchy carbohydrate sources with low glycemic index values. You know, you can kind of start to see how eating clean wraps, you know, some, some of the things we've talked about previously get folded into it. There, there's a, a lot of folks who claim that they eat clean and they avoid some of these, you know, they, they might adopt a gluten-free diet or a very low gluten diet. Uh, they might notice that their carb intake is going down, that they're doing more, uh, they're, they're embracing more low glycemic index carbohydrates. So some of these topics are highly interrelated and correlated. Um, but a lot of times, you know, the, the simple heuristic for someone who says that they eat clean is just ask yourself, if I were to go to a bodybuilding magazine from 2005 and open it up to a page that says, hey, here's a sample diet. What am I going to see in there? It's going to be brown rice. It's going to be sweet potatoes. It's going to be chicken breast. It's going to be lean beef. It's going to be broccoli, you know, fibrous vegetables. It's all of those bodybuilding staple foods that, we've be, that, we, that we have generally become accustomed to in the fitness world. So eating clean, 
very, very popular, especially among physique athletes. And in the physique athlete and bodybuilding world, there is a bit of a, a divergence. There's been kind of two camps that form. There's the people who eat clean and have, you know, some of these more rigid approaches to which foods are considered good or permissible and which foods are considered bad or not permissible. Uh, you know, so if you're eating clean, you probably have a list of foods that are acceptable and everything else is off the menu. And there's this whole other camp of physique athletes and bodybuilders who say, well, I'll eat any food source that's out there as long as it's fitting my macro targets for the day. Um, so this very flexible approach to food source selection, there's these kind of two camps that that formed. Now, I don't want to make it seem like I'm, you know, totally against the concept of eating clean. I mean, if you're on a diet where, where you know, if you're on some kind of like clean foods diet, uh, as some might say, there are some some advantages there, right? So you're eating plenty of foods that are very nutrient dense. And it, it is uh, a dieting framework where you have some flexibility with your macronutrient distribution. So eating clean does not lock you into a particular macronutrient distribution. Uh, a lot of folks who eat clean will notice that their carb intake in many cases tends to go down a little bit just because they're um, they're less likely to embrace a lot of processed carbohydrate food sources. Uh, but generally speaking, like, hey, there's there's plenty of good foods in there, plenty of foods that provide a lot of micronutrients, a lot of fiber, getting plenty of protein. Uh, there's a lot to like when you look at the types of foods that are included uh, in what we would call a clean eating dietary pattern. However, there are some shortcomings. Um, obviously, there's going to be limited variety. Um, and, and what's interesting about that is these foods on an individual basis, if you're eating clean, on an individual basis, they tend to have plenty of micronutrients. But because you are limiting the variety of your food sources, you are limiting the breadth of your macro or your micronutrient coverage, right? So you might be eating foods that have a ton of vitamin C and a ton of vitamin A, but that you know, you could eat three times your daily need for vitamin C, but that's not really helping you get vitamin D or vitamin E into your diet. So you can see how you could be eating plenty of foods that are nutrient dense, but if they all contain if they all contain the same micronutrients, you might actually have some micronutrient gaps in your diet, which a lot of people would never expect. You say, what do you eat? You say, oh my God, every food I eat is like super clean, tons of vitamins and minerals, but if they're all containing the same vitamins and minerals, you might actually have glaring gaps in your diet. And there was a study by Ishmael and colleagues in 2017 indicating that in some cases, people who eat clean, uh, they actually do find when they analyze their uh, their food logs, hey, you actually have some, some gaps here that might be filled if you had a more flexible approach to your food source selection. Uh, and there was even a study by Conlin and colleagues, Lauren Conlin, who works in the fitness industry. She's excellent. Um, she published a study with a bunch of colleagues in 2021 where they found similar or even arguably slightly better body composition outcomes when people were using flexible dieting rather than a kind of rigid, clean eating dietary approach. Uh, so when we look at micronutrient coverage and when we just look at bigger picture outcomes in terms of dietary success, um, there are some potential shortcomings with locking yourself into a rigid diet plan 
that only embraces some of these foods that are called clean foods. Um, along those lines, you know, the, the biggest shortcoming here with clean eating is the rigidity, the lack of flexibility. Um, in some cases, it's not going to be very practical and it's not going to be very sustainable. Uh, you know, you can do it for four weeks at a time when you have no social events and no trips or vacations, but you'll probably run into a situation where you get to a restaurant for a birthday party and you say, what in the world am I going to eat here? You know, um, another thing is that it tends to reinforce what we call rigid cognitive restraint. Um, and the reason I say that is because we have to dichotomize foods as being either good or bad. They're either allowed or not allowed. And when we look at the ramifications of rigid cognitive restraint when it comes to dieting, uh, we often see that rigid restraint is associated with unfavorable psychological outcomes and really isn't all that good for dietary success in the first place when it just comes to simply attaining the goals that you set out for yourself. And there was a great review paper uh, by Eric Helms uh, and colleagues in 2019 that talks a lot about rigid cognitive restraint versus flexible cognitive restraint uh, and talks about, frankly, the shortcomings uh, of adopting rigid cognitive restraint. So clean eating, uh, there are plenty of, you know, really high quality food sources that come with it, but um, there are a number of disadvantages there. Now, earlier we talked about low carb diets and I did briefly mention ketogenic diets so I do want to talk very specifically about ketogenic diets. And with a ketogenic diet, typically you're looking at a diet where less than 10% of your, uh, your less than 10% of your calories are coming from carbohydrates. So this is a very, very low carbohydrate diet approach. Um, broadly speaking, there's going to be a lot of fat in the diet, sometimes up to 70 or 80% of calories coming from fat. And then there's going to be, you know, enough protein in there to get the job done, basically. So very low carb, uh, much higher in fat than the typical diet, uh, and enough protein to meet the individual's uh, goals in terms of supporting muscle mass and strength. Uh, now, 10% of carbs is a common definition or a common limit, I should say, for ketogenic diets. But some people, rather than focusing on total carbs, they will look at net carbs instead, so they'll basically remove fiber from the equation and only count their non-fiber carbohydrates. And they'll set some type of, of goal for the day or some type of limit in terms of grams of net carbohydrate per day. And I think the reason people do that is if you're on a relatively low calorie diet and you're saying that you know less than 10% of your total calories can, can come from carbohydrate, um, one of the issues there is it can be very difficult to meet even the most bare minimum guidelines for vegetable intake. So I think a lot of folks say, okay, I'm going to incorporate some fibrous vegetables into my diet, try to minimize the starchy vegetables and see if I can get to a, a carb intake um, using this net carb approach that is low enough to be compatible with a ketogenic diet but also allows me to kind of check some of these boxes in terms of vegetable intake. Because like I said, going all the way back to some of those uh, healthy diet indicator criteria, um, you know, getting plenty of vegetables in the diet, broadly speaking, is, is considered a, a tremendously healthy thing to do. There are very few people who push back against that. And the more importantly, the literature bears that out. Um, you really don't want to be on a diet where you are aggressively 
restricting high fiber vegetables. So like I said, people on keto, sometimes they just limit their total carbs to, to less than 10% of their total energy intake. Sometimes they focus on net carbs instead. Now, ketogenic diets used to be viewed uh, in the fitness world as a pretty extreme diet. Um, you know, it, it, they, it used to be viewed as largely reserved for people who had some very specific uh, medical conditions related to carbohydrate metabolism in the brain. So if you look at a lot of the literature on ketogenic diets, uh, one of the key applications is for some seizure disorders where people have inborn errors uh, in terms of carbohydrate metabolism in their brain. They were born with these medical conditions where the brain is not able to process carbohydrate uh, as effectively as, as we would like. And as a result, due to that um, uh, inborn error in carbohydrate metabolism in the brain, uh, seizures are experienced. So there are a lot of people for whom uh, a ketogenic diet is a life-saving, uh, you know, just in terms of quality of life, uh, just a life-changing medical intervention. Um, there are people who have really remarkable uh, improvement in seizure-related conditions from adopting a ketogenic diet. So in terms of ketogenic diets as a medical intervention for specific uh, medical conditions, um, there is so much good that has been done by, by ketogenic diets. Now, the question is, you know, how does that pertain to the, the, you know, the typical fitness population who does not have a medical condition that would, that would normally be treated by a ketogenic diet? So, uh, you know, like I said, back in the day, several years ago, ketogenic diets were, were considered pretty extreme in the fitness world. It was considered kind of a specific medical intervention for seizure disorders and, and some other medical conditions. Um, but when it comes to the fitness world, the, uh, the Overton window has really shifted when it comes to what diets are considered extreme. So nowadays, a ketogenic diet is considered, <laughs> is considered pretty mainstream because more extreme diets have really moved into the space on a larger scale. So when we look at a ketogenic diet versus a more traditional macronutrient breakdown, uh, a ketogenic diet tends to be similar or in some cases slightly better for fat loss. Now, if we're controlling calories, a ketogenic diet is unlikely to be better for fat loss. But uh, when keto, where, where we see ketogenic diets uh, excel in the fat loss literature, it largely has to do with appetite reduction. So if we take two people and we just say, hey, try to lose some weight, one group, you know, one person is doing a ketogenic diet, the other is not. The person on the ketogenic diet, you know, these ketogenic diets tend to have a pretty robust effect in, in terms of suppressing appetite. So a person on a ketogenic, di ketogenic diet might find it to be a little bit easier to adhere to a lower calorie diet, uh, largely because they're keeping hunger at bay. Now, they might find it harder to adhere because a ketogenic diet is going to be more restrictive and there's going to be less flexibility in terms of what foods they're able to incorporate. So there are pros and cons there. For fat loss, a ketogenic diet may be better because it can reduce appetite. For some individuals, it may be worse because they say, I'm trying to do this ketogenic diet, but I love carbohydrate foods. And so I'm just really struggling with adherence and therefore I'm not able to really effectively reduce my calorie intake. So there are some situations where keto can be favorable for fat loss. 
some where it can be unfavorable, and a large number of, of scenarios where both, both approaches are actually going to be very equivalent in terms of inducing fat loss. Um, now, when it comes to lean body mass or muscle mass, studies have indicated that ketogenic diets are actually slightly worse than a more traditional macronutrient breakdown. Now, people who advocate on behalf of ketogenic diets often argue that this is just due to water weight. So when you go on a very low-carb diet, your muscles and your liver store less glycogen. Uh, glycogen stores water with it. And so as you're losing glycogen in terms of total storage, uh, you lose some water weight as well. So a lot of folks will argue that when we look at the research showing drops in fat-free mass or muscle mass or lean body mass, a lot of people will argue we're just seeing a reduction of water weight that can be attributed to the loss of glycogen. Uh, that certainly could be a contributing factor. Um, I'm not fully convinced that it is the only factor dictating some of these outcomes pertaining to fat-free mass or muscle mass. Uh, there could be other factors at play. Uh, for example, if you are doing a lot of glycolytic resistance training, if you're doing you know, more high volume, high repetition, uh, short rest period, if, if that is what your, tr your workouts are looking like, um, it is possible that a ketogenic diet could impair your performance to some extent and could have downstream effects on your ability to gain or maintain muscle mass. Now, it's really important to recognize the details of your training are going to dictate whether or not a ketogenic diet is going to impact your performance or your ability to maintain muscle. Uh, like I said, high volume, high repetition, short rest periods, that tends to be pretty glycolytic. It's very possible that a ketogenic diet could lead to an impairment in your performance. If you're doing CrossFit type training or circuit training, uh, it's even more likely that a ketogenic diet could start to impact your performance in an unfavorable way, which could threaten your ability to maintain muscle. Uh, now, if you're doing a weightlifting or powerlifting style training, you, most of your training might be sets of one or three or five repetitions, and you might take five, seven, 10 minutes between sets. And you might be on a program that overall has pretty low training volume. Within those circumstances, to be honest, I would not expect a ketogenic diet to impair performance much at all. Uh, and in fact, it, it could, could very well be equivalent. So uh, I, I've talked to a lot of folks over the years who say, Eric, you know, I, I keep hearing that ketogenic diets are bad for resistance training performance, but you know, I, I'm on a low volume powerlifting program. Most of my training, I'm just doing heavy sets of three and I feel fine. And that really doesn't surprise me at all. You know, so if you're on that type of program, you can probably do a ketogenic diet without impacting your performance really at all. But the more glycolytic your training gets, the more likely it is that a ketogenic diet could lead to a performance impairment. And if you're performing more poorly over time, you could theoretically expect a reduction in muscle mass, or just you're, you're leaving potential gains on the table in terms of gaining new muscle mass. So that, that's a very contentious topic. And like I said, I'm, I'm being very transparent. There's a lot of nuance when it comes to looking at a individual scenario, the way that person trains and trying to figure out if a ketogenic diet might impair their performance. Um, there are some applications where a ketogenic diet should be able to facilitate resistance training performance, and there are some applications where it probably won't.
while we're on the topic of ketogenic diets and popular diets, one that I want to mention is the Atkins diet. And this kind of falls um, under the umbrella of ketogenic diets because my understanding is that the Atkins diet, as it was originally developed, was a diet that occurs in phases. I believe there were four phases in total. The first phase is very reminiscent of just a typical ketogenic diet. And then my understanding is that from there, phase two, three, and four involve an incremental reintroduction of some carbohydrates. So it basically, as you progress through the four phases of the Atkins diet as it was originally created, you you kind of go from a ketogenic diet and work your way up to a more typical low-carb diet uh, by the time you get to phase four. Um, so I did want to just mention the Atkins diet because people ask about it a lot. My feelings about the Atkins diet are basically all the things I just described about ketogenic diets and then low-carb diets as well. So I'm not, um, the, you know, I wouldn't say that the Atkins diet approach is terrible for all people in all cases, uh, but it is a very restrictive approach. It's important to acknowledge that. Um, and, you know, for some people, the low carbs are really not going to impact any outcome that is uh, really important to them. You know, some people can do uh, a ketogenic diet or an Atkins diet, and it can support their performance goals, their health-related goals, et cetera. Um, but for, for some individuals, they will find that, you know, for example, they were doing a lot of high-intensity activity. They tried the Atkins diet, and their performance tanked, and they realized, hey, this is not for me. One final thing I should mention about ketogenic diets, uh, Atkins diets, low-carb diets, I want to circle back to the healthy diet indicator criteria. Two of the criteria were having total fat below 30% of total energy, having saturated fat below 10% of total energy. A lot of folks on ketogenic diets and the Atkins diet are, are not going to adhere to those, um, to those criteria, right? And like I said, the healthy diet indicator criteria, they are a good broad set of guidelines that are compatible with the best available nutritional science. Uh, but some folks will say, you know what? I'm not really worried about optimizing my blood lipids. I'm not really worried about optimizing my cardiometabolic health outcomes. Uh, you know, I'm not, I'm not building my diet based on my concerns about cardiovascular disease risk in three decades. So uh, you know, when, when we talk about how these diets are going to be incorporated, I don't want to give the illusion, as I try to point out some of their positive attributes, that these diets will all impact long-term health in the same exact way. Uh, ultimately, like I said, I think if you want to really hedge your bets and set yourself up for the best possible long-term health ramifications, I do think you want to adhere to as many of those healthy diet indicator criteria as you feasibly can while still maintaining a sustainable dietary pattern. So when you start to look at ketogenic diets, um, Atkins diet, things like that, you will come to find that there are elements that do disregard uh, some of these guidelines that are considered best practice for minimizing long-term risk of cardiovascular events. And it's important to highlight that is a shortcoming, uh, in my opinion. Now, there are people who will argue and argue and argue and argue that uh, we know virtually nothing at all about LDL cholesterol and, and how different uh, blood lipid parameters pertain to, um, to long-term cardiovascular outcomes. 
that's not an argument that I enjoy participating in. Um, I, I do refer people to a really nice three-part article series over at Sigma Nutrition by Alan Flanagan uh, that talks through all the evidence pertaining to saturated fat, dietary fat, blood lipids, heart disease. You know, it, it really is a comprehensive three-part series. So I'll do my best to remember linking that in the show notes, um, but, but it is something to keep in mind as you're considering things like a ketogenic diet or an Atkins diet. As the first and only fitness podcast with a steadfast commitment to traditional family values, we know that protecting families is important. Right you are, Eric. But I will note there are some things that are even more important than protecting traditional family values and the moral fabric of our society. That's right, Greg. It's important to protect families, but it's even more important to protect corporate entities. That's why I joined the advisory board for the Sports Nutrition Association, along with trusted fitness pros like Danny Lennon and distrusted arch nemeses like Eric Helms. The Sports Nutrition Association is the home of sports nutrition. They are dedicated to ensuring the sustainable prosperity of the sports nutrition profession, and they offer a unique pathway to robust insurance coverage for your sports nutrition business. Simply put, it's the best way to protect the corporate entities that are closest to your heart. And I should note, if you're an individual sole proprietor uh, providing sports nutrition services and not a corporate entity, the Sports Nutrition Association can help you out as well. That is correct. All insurance plans are handled individually on a case-by-case basis, regardless of how your sports nutrition business is structured. But even if you don't want insurance coverage, SNA membership comes with a bunch of other perks and advantages. The Sports Nutrition Association is the only global professional sports body that has a defined standard for sports nutrition scope of practice for its members. This ensures that members maintain high standards in their practice so that the public can always trust in the quality associated with the services of an accredited sports nutritionist through the Sports Nutrition Association. If you already meet their minimum education requirements, you can become an accredited sports nutritionist today. Uh, If you don't meet those education requirements yet, you can enroll in the certificate program in Applied Sports Nutrition. That allows you to become a provisionally accredited member upon completion. To learn more about the Sports Nutrition Association, head over to www.sportsnutritionassociation.com today. Today's episode is sponsored by the Sports Nutrition Association and Stronger by Science LLC sincerely appreciates their support. All right, moving on. The next diet I want to talk about is the paleo diet. And the paleo diet is, you know, the general premise is that uh, over the course of our evolutionary history as a species, uh, Homo sapiens ate a certain selection of foods, and theoretically, we would be better served by eating the foods that we ate during our evolutionary process, or in other words, eating the foods that we were theoretically evolved to eat. Um, so that's the premise. And in order to identify what those foods are, uh, advocates of the paleo diet say, let's go back to the Paleolithic era, which was from 2.5 million years ago to 10,000 years ago. And let's try to you know, make some assumptions, some educated guesses about what foods were being eaten predominantly during that time frame. And so uh, when, you're, when, when someone adopts the paleo diet or the modern interpretation, 
they're going to be eating mostly fruits, vegetables, lean meats, fish, eggs, nuts, and seeds. Um, and in a way, you could argue that the paleo diet is more defined by what you don't eat than what you do. Uh, so people who consume a, or, or adhere to a paleo diet generally don't eat foods that became more widely available with the advent of modern farming practices. So they basically would avoid things like grains, legumes, and dairy products. Uh, and then, of course, you know, processed foods with a bunch of added sugars and things like that. So, so it's a pretty limited scope of whole foods um, that, that paleo dieters select from. And there are entire food groups that get excluded. Um, one thing that I think is worth noting is that the, uh, the idea that we can create kind of the ideal or optimal hunter-gatherer diet it does rest on a lot of assumptions and generalizations. And if you ask yourself and consult with the literature, what do hunter-gatherer populations actually eat? The answer is that it depends, and it depends a lot. There is a tremendous amount of variation when you compare the diet of one hunter-gatherer population to another. Uh, so there's a great paper by Ponser and colleagues, and you, you might recall that name Ponser because we've talked about his research many times on the show, but in this paper, they were looking at the dietary uh, patterns of a large number of hunter-gatherer populations. In this case, I believe it was 265 distinct hunter-gatherer populations. And they're kind of interested in saying, okay, what do these people eat? And, and the short answer is whatever they can get their hands on, basically. Um, so what they found was that there was a tremendous amount of variation when comparing one dietary pattern to another. That variation was geographically uh, clustered, and generally speaking, it was dictated by latitude, right? So you could think of, you know, if I were a hunter-gatherer living near the equator, what would be accessible to me? That would be very, very different from if I were all the way up near the North Pole <laughs> trying to, you know, trying to uh, hunt and gather food. And so as latitude changes, as geography changes, dietary patterns change in hunter-gatherer populations because they must. Food availability is simply different. Um, but when it comes to trying to paint with uh, a broad brush and say, you know, here's the optimal hunter-gatherer diet that humans evolved to eat, it's very, very difficult to do that. Uh, the variation is immense. And if you just look at a simple characteristic like what percentage of the diet comes from plant foods versus animal foods. When you look at this large collection of hunter-gatherer populations, you see that, I mean, there are some uh, hunter-gatherer populations where almost all of the food is coming from plants, and there are some where almost all of the food is coming from animal-based sources, and of course, everything in between. So I, I do think that we should um, resist the urge to assume that there is a singular kind of standard human hunter-gatherer diet, because uh, what our evolutionary history tells us is that humans are very adaptable, and we can adapt to the food availability of whatever environment we happen to be in within reason. Of course, we have a limited capacity for adaptation, but, um, but yeah, humans have thrived on a wide range of diets in our evolutionary history, and it's important to recognize that whenever you talk about the paleo diet. Now, the paleo diet, um, from my perspective, there are some, uh, some advantages or some upsides. If you were to look at the diet, you know, if you were to talk to someone who's on a paleo diet and just say, all right, write down when you had for breakfast, lunch, and dinner, you would look through the foods and you'd say, wow, okay, this is great. You're eating a lot of 
really nutritious foods with plenty of micronutrients, and that's excellent. Um, but what you will find is that they are excluding some entire food groups, which means that there might be a possibility that you're missing out on you know one or two key micronutrients here and there. Generally speaking, we don't want to exclude entire food groups unless we must. Now, sometimes there are situations where we have to exclude large you know uh, groups of different food products because of some medical reason, uh, or, or it might be um, you know a decision that is you know driven by an ethical decision or a religious decision to exclude certain foods, but from a purely nutritional perspective, we'd love to have the biggest menu uh, possible. We don't want to be arbitrarily excluding food groups unless we must. And so when it comes to the paleo diet, you know, when you look at things like whole grain products or legumes or, or dairy products, we are kind of arbitrarily excluding some food groups and a large number of food products that, that do have something to bring to the table in, in terms of nutrient coverage. So um, the paleo diet on the up, you know, on the advantage side or the pro side, you could say, yeah, there's a lot of really nutritious foods that can be incorporated here, and you're not necessarily locked into a set macronutrient distribution. Although I will say, in practice, it seems that a lot of people on paleo diets do err toward lower carbohydrate intake. Uh, but, but like I said, generally speaking. Um, you know, there are some really nutritious foods in the mix, uh, some flexibility in terms of macronutrient distribution. However, because it's arbitrarily uh, excluding some of those food groups, um, I, I, I struggle to see it as a, uh, an optimal kind of default mode of eating. But without question, there are a great many folks who kind of consume like a typical Western diet who would meaningfully improve their dietary pattern by switching from their kind of typical Western diet to a paleo diet. I, I would not, uh, I would not uh, push back against that contention. I think for a lot of folks, simply incorporating more of these nutritious foods would be a beneficial thing. But the, the thing with the paleo diet is that it just has some restrictions that are a bit arbitrary. They're not fully necessary. They're difficult to defend from a nutritional perspective. And ultimately, they're just taking choices and flexibility off the table. All right, now moving on, I want to talk about the carnivore diet. This is the last diet that I'm going to discuss in today's episode. Um, now, I was on uh, a web series with Omar Esau uh, about a year or two ago, and I talked a little bit about the carnivore diet. Um, and we were talking about it in the context of ancient warriors. Omar did a really entertaining series about ancient warriors and how they might have eaten, how they might have trained, and things like that. If you haven't seen it, I, I would encourage you to check it out. It's very, very entertaining. Omar is an extremely entertaining dude, so it, it's good stuff. Um, but in that, uh, you know, we had a chat about the carnivore diet as it pertained to a particular group of ancient warriors. And one of the questions that came up was very basic. It was you know, can you survive on a carnivore diet? And the answer is yes, it seems so. Um, as long as it is a very thoughtfully constructed carnivore diet. Um, you know, I, I think a lot of folks, when they think of the carnivore diet, they think about just eating beef, you know, ground beef and steak and water and salt. And there are people who claim to do that. Um, and I, I simply don't get it. I, I don't know why you would opt into a list of foods that small. Uh, and, and I think that the nutrient coverage is severely limited on that type of diet. Um, I struggle to understand how someone would truly adhere to that for a long time scale 
without supplementation and not um and not essentially suffer the consequences of some pretty pretty notable mic- micronutrient deficiencies um you know i i think that if you are someone who is you know seeing people talk about an all beef diet and all you're eating is literally the muscle tissue of cows i could not um urge against following that diet uh more strongly than 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 this i mean unequivocally that is a terrible diet to only eat the muscle the muscle tissue of cows if you're on a ground beef only and steak only diet from a nutritional perspective uh that that is a truly terrible diet and i've not said that about any of the other fad diets we've talked about this far so i I hope that i've uh gained a little bit of credibility in the sense that i i haven't been just trying to rail on these diets but there are very few redeemable qualities whatsoever of a diet that exclusively leans on beef um now you can have a beef heavy carnivore diet that is much more compatible with a healthy dietary pattern uh, and the way you would do that, the way that is uh, relatively common or popular among uh, carnivore influencers, is to focus on eating a variety of different animal tissues. So not just eating uh, the muscle tissue of cows, not just eating ground beef and steak, but also eating a variety of different organ meats. Um, and there are some organ meats that are very, very dense and very rich in micronutrients. So it would be unfair to just say that all carnivore diets are just like steak only diets um, and that they, you know, have these massive shortcomings with micronutrients. There are some folks who do what they call nose to tail carnivore dieting, where they're consuming a lot of different tissues, um, you know, rather than just muscle tissue. And um, like I said, there, there are definitely some, some organ tissues that contain a high density of a wide range of micronutrients. So um, a beef-only diet is truly a terrible idea, uh, and there are no redeeming qualities of such a diet that could not be found from a much more suitable, much more effective diet. Uh, the kind of nose-to-tail carnivore approach, not really my thing in terms of my food preferences and, and the things that I find palatable, but at the very least, it does open up some doors for additional micronutrient coverage. Um, of course, one thing that you have to ask yourself is why am I excluding plants from my diet? A lot of times people who talk about carnivore diets are really, uh, really exaggerating the impact of what would be called anti-nutrients. Um, so the, there's a lot of folks who kind of push this narrative that plants have all these toxins and the plants are trying to kill you when you eat them and therefore plants are bad for you. I mean, if you're really making an evidence-based argument that vegetables are are truly bad for human beings we just don't see the literature the same way uh and and we clearly don't uh see the hierarchy of evidence the same way usually people will look at these little kind of mechanistic studies or just kind of theoretical extrapolations well if that's an anti-nutrient then what would happen if you had this much of it It, it's really uh, taking these little tiny granules of truth and spinning up these um extrapolations and these exaggerations that would lead one to say oh yeah you should avoid all plant-based food sources and uh it's extremely difficult to defend that position when you look at the broader literature so um you know can you get uh a lot of you know protein essential fatty acids suitable micronutrient coverage from a really well-rounded carnivore diet it's possible um but it's important to note that you really are excluding a lot of 
very high quality food sources for essentially no reason at all. Um, you know, a lot of folks will say, well, I, I'm doing the carnivore diet because I had, um, you know, a really high number of food allergies or food sensitivities. I do uh, empathize with that situation. I, I truly understand, you know, the the premise there. But for people in that situation, there are a lot of folks right now on social media saying, if you have a lot of food sensitivities or allergies, you just eat steak the rest of your life. Uh, that's, first of all, terrible advice. And second of all, not the best way to approach this. There are better ways. What you would want to do, in my opinion, is get with a registered dietitian and try an elimination diet, where what you would do is, for a short period of time, you would whittle down your food list to a very restricted list of foods, uh, you know, very bare bones diet, but then you would systematically reintroduce foods and try to figure out, how do I work back to a sustainable long-term dietary pattern that doesn't aggravate my food allergies or sensitivities? You'd want to do that under the direction of a qualified professional, um, but, you know, when, when we talk about these really restrictive diets, uh, you know, maybe if you're doing an elimination diet, you might have a super restrictive pattern for a couple weeks at a time. Uh, but this idea that you're just going to eat ground beef for the rest of your life is, is really not a suitable solution, even in that particular application. Um, one other thing I want to mention with, with the carnivore diet, I, I just think this is interesting and I haven't heard anyone really talk about it. There's a lot of chatter in the carnivore world that, you know, um, first of all, you know, these carnivore diets are, are totally, um, you know, if you're eating nose to tail, as they always say, uh, you know, you're good to go, plenty of micronutrients. This is how, you know, plenty of hunter-gatherer populations would get their micronutrients is by eating, you know, eyeballs and skin and things like that. Uh, I did come across a paper uh, where they were looking at uh, dietary patterns in East Greenland. Uh, in a hunter-gatherer uh, population, and they're looking at data from 1936 to 1937 and, and how this hunter-gatherer population was eating, and more specifically, they were looking at how they were getting vitamin C in an area where there really wasn't a lot of what we would call terrestrial vegetation, not a lot of land-based plants that you could grow and, and eat for vitamin C content. Uh, and so I'm just going to read this quote um, from the uh, from the paper the main conclusions of the present study are the important role of algae consumption in Greenlandic traditional dietary pattern to avoid scurvy, and that foods traditionally seen as important sources of vitamin C, like eyes from seals and narwhal skin, played a minor role in meeting the vitamin C requirements. So basically what they did was they re reanalyzed some of this nutritional data from several decades ago and said, you know, we always assumed that, that these individuals were getting most of their vitamin C from seal eyeballs and getting it from narwhal skin. Uh, one of the things that they were talking about in the paper is, I mean, if you're getting a lot, if, if this group of individuals was getting a huge portion of their vitamin C from seal eyeballs, that is a lot of seals that you need to be able to, to hunt uh, over a given time frame. And so one of the things that tipped them off into looking more deeply into algae consumption was they were just like, I mean, from a feasibility perspective, how are you getting this many sea, uh, seal eyeballs, um, you know, in order to sustain the dietary needs of this population of hunter-gatherers? So um, I, I think in some cases, uh, there's a, a, a tendency to assume that, yeah, this nose-to-tail thing is how everybody does it. No one, would, no one in their right mind would be eating 
vegetation, whether it's sea vegetation or, or terrestrial vegetation. Sea, when I say sea vegetation, I mean you know algae, seaweed, things like that. Um, so I, I just wanted to highlight a, in a, uh, what I found to be an interesting observation, which is that even in populations that have traditionally been assumed to be almost fully car- uh, carnivorous in terms of their dietary pattern, it's very possible that they have been leaning on things like seaweed and algae for some micronutrient coverage more than we might anticipate. Now, big, big, big caveat. I have just opened myself up to a world of pain. Uh, I have no interest in going toe-to-toe <laughs> with, uh, with someone whose entire life is built around the carnivore diet, uh, digging into this kind of population-level research about who, which of these hunter-gatherer populations is, you know, fully carnivorous and which ones are not. Um, that, that's not something that interests me. Uh, I just wanted to point this out because I, I found it to be an interesting observation. Uh, like I said, I, I don't contest the idea that you could formulate a, a carnivore diet that, you know, theoretically with enough access to various organ tissues could sustain and support human life. I don't contest that. But what I would say is, Boy, that's a hard way to eat. <laughs> if you if you have access to a grocery store, uh, there are some more flexible and some more sustainable ways to put together a dietary pattern. So I would just caution people against, you know, like I said, I'm I'm not a big fan of you know just arbitrarily taking entire food groups off the menu. When it comes to the carnivore ti- carnivore diet, you're taking almost all the food groups off the menu in a way that's really arbitrary and most of the justifications for it just really fall flat at face value. They're really not compatible with the evidence. Um, One thing that I find interesting about the carnivore diet is some folks have started to adapt it a little bit. Um, And and, and I saw this, you know, back, back in the day around 2012, 2013, I would follow the paleo diet a little more closely and I started to see these iterations where people would just tweak it and say, yeah, paleo, except for the thing I really like. I'm going to throw that in there too. Um, so I have seen people who have said like, yeah, I don't necessarily call it carnivore, but I'm going to call it like animal based, but I'm going to eat meat and you know a bunch of organ tissues and dairy products and honey and fruit. And at a certain point, I'm just looking at this dietary pattern. I'm like, are you sure that this isn't just like a gluten-free diet from someone who hates vegetables? Because it starts to kind of get there. Um, And it's funny because like from a nomenclature perspective, I think it's kind of silly because I'm like, dude, you're just not, you're just not doing a carnivore diet anymore. I don't know why you're fighting so hard to make this seem like a a carnivore adjacent diet. Like you just ate like half a watermelon, you know, like it's not really a carnivore kind of thing. So from a nomenclature perspective, I think it's kind of silly, but from a dietary pattern perspective, it's an upgrade. And so like, I'm not going to, I'm not going to say like, Hey, don't do that. I mean, if someone tells me, you know, I was eating beef only, but now I'm eating, you know, beef and organ meat and dairy and honey and fruit. Then I'm like, whatever, dude, perfect. Like it's an upgrade. I'll take it. And that's usually how I view things with the carnivore diet. Um, Usually people who are on a carnivore diet, I'll be completely candid they don't really reach out to me because they have self-selected out of the content I make. Uh, You know, carnivore diet content is like its own little niche. And uh, I'm not one of the producers in that niche. So I don't get a lot of folks who come to me and say, hey, Eric, I'm on a carnivore diet. What should I do? It has happened, but not not much. Um, But in those scenarios, if someone comes up to me and says, Eric, I'm on a carnivore diet, what do you think I should do? 
the first thing I try to do is figure out what got us here. Why are we on a carnivore diet? And obviously that's going to dictate the path forward. But my general approach, usually when people have gone to the lengths of adopting a carnivore diet, there's already some pretty extreme nutritional perspectives at play there. And I don't want to rock the boat too much. And so what I'll say is, okay, well, can we go from carnivore to like ketogenic with just like a couple other like food sources in the mix? Maybe you're willing to do like some dairy, some fruit, you know, and we're still like pretty keto, but we're working in some berries and we've got some dairy products. Like, can we do that? You know, and sometimes people say, yeah, I can get on board with that. And then, you know, they start to say, okay, well, you know, eating more than steak, I I haven't fallen apart yet. This is fine. And then, you know, you can say, okay, well, how do you feel about the paleo diet, right? And so like, we'll still be eating like the meat and the organs and the, the fruit and stuff, but we'll mix in some other things, you know? And so if you can work someone, um, you know, kind of as a sequential process and go from carnivore to ketogenic with a limited food selection and then work your way toward something like a paleo diet, you don't have to like totally disrupt some of those um, concerns they might have about food source selection. You can kind of ease them into a dietary pattern that is a lot more flexible. And, um, you know, going back to those... um, those criteria we talked about earlier, we can check more boxes. If someone comes to me and says, Eric, I only eat ground beef and steak. And, you know, I put some salt on it sometimes. Um, When we look at those healthy diet indicator criteria, we're not really checking any of the boxes. You know, we, we have a lot of ground to make up. And so when I think about transitioning someone or helping nudge them from one very restrictive dietary pattern to a less restrictive pattern, to a less restrictive pattern, to a less restrictive pattern. What I'm really trying to do is say, can we create a pathway by which we are going to become more compliant, I guess, with those healthy diet indicator criteria? We don't have to go 100% check every single box, but we really want to be checking some of those boxes, you know, and some of them are more important than others for sure. But that usually is the process I take. If if someone, like I said, is, is on a, a, carni- a carnivore diet that is beef only, you, you have to appreciate that going into that, they're going to have some pretty extreme perspectives about food. And if you say, well, actually, you should be on a raw food vegan diet instead, um, <laughs> that's going to require them to literally reverse everything they've ever thought about food. That's too too big of a, of a jump to make for most people. Um, now, it's possible that they went to the extremes of the carnivore diet because they, they kind of have a personality and a temperament that latches on to its extremes. So maybe they do want to jump from the most carnivore diet possible to the most vegan diet possible. You never know. Uh, but generally speaking, it, it can be I think for most folks, a little bit easier to do a sequence of nudges and say, okay, let's try to incorporate a few things at a time here, um, which, like I said, is is pretty pretty similar to what we would see with uh, a medical professional who might be overseeing that process of doing an elimination diet followed by a reintroduction process. You know, in this case, it's more psychologically making sure that you're not biting off more than you can chew and just kind of easing back into a more flexible dietary pattern that's ultimately going to be more compatible with the health-related literature. So uh, really quick, I want to just do a little summary to wrap up here. Um, When it comes to low-carb diets, there are plenty of great applications, 
But there are also some applications that are far more restrictive than they need to be. So whenever you're looking at any particular version of a low-carb diet, you want to look at it and say, first of all, are there enough carbs to support the physical activity that is important to me? Um, that's really going to dictate how many carbs you really need on a day-to-day basis. From there, you want to think about, is this diet pattern consistent with my preferences? Uh, is it checking a lot of the boxes that we associate with a generally healthy dietary pattern? You want to take a closer look at, is this something that is really suitable for me? Is it going to be sustainable and feasible? And does it fit my preferences uh, reasonably well? Um, from that point, you then want to look at the specific uh, restrictions that are implemented. Make sure that they're not too restrictive for your lifestyle and also make sure that they're not completely arbitrary in nature. And as I mentioned previously, if there are any elements of the dietary approach that, that required, re- require you to arbitrarily eliminate entire food groups or to really micromanage glycemic index values or to continuously monitor your glucose levels, those are probably approaches that are worth skipping um, because it probably means you're going to be investing a lot of time and effort and worry, and you're probably not going to get a lot back from that investment. So these types of low-carb diet approaches, as we've discussed, they take many, many forms, right? It could be the Zone diet, the Atkins diet, the South Beach diet, a generic low-carb diet, paleo, keto, carnivore, you name it. There's a lot of different diets that fall under this low-carb umbrella. Some of them, you know, a basic low-carb diet can be totally suitable for a large number of people, but there are some applications of these low-carb diets that get really arbitrarily restrictive. They might be a bit problematic in terms of eliminating really high-quality food sources. They might make it harder to get all the micronutrients you need. And they might just be so difficult to sustain that it really negatively impacts quality of life. So those are the things you want to keep in mind when you're looking at some of these popular diets. Now, finally, before I end this episode, I hope you'll afford me the opportunity to make a shameless sales pitch on behalf of Macrofactor, which is the diet app that Greg and I co-developed with a very talented team of colleagues. Uh, As you're considering the wide variety of diet strategies that you might implement in the new year, uh, I just want to uh, reassure people that whatever you might be getting into from a nutritional perspective, Macrofactor can absolutely facilitate whatever you're planning to do. Uh, First and foremost, Macrofactor is a remarkably fast and efficient food logger. Uh, It is remarkably convenient as a food logger. It has a huge verified databases of foods that you can trust. It also has extremely efficient processes by which you can add custom foods, custom recipes, and you can even share your recipes with others. Uh, So whatever your food choice preferences are, uh, Macrofactor can certainly handle it. Now within Macrofactor, we have coached programs that give you, you know, different macro programs And there are several settings that range all the way from ketogenic diets to low-fat diets. And within each of those macro programs, you have tons of flexibility. You can choose four different levels of protein intake based on your preferences. But if you want even greater flexibility, you can branch out from the coached programs and get into what we call collaborative mode, which is still coached in terms of your calorie targets, but you have a lot more flexibility with your day-to-day macro distributions or 
If you want even more flexibility, you can do a fully manual program that is customized exactly to your liking. Uh, one other thing I should note is macro factor. The food log actually takes the form of a timeline. So what that means is if you're interested in doing time-restricted feeding, uh, it's very, very easy to implement a wide range of food timing strategies. So it could be time-restricted feeding, or you might just want to have a really consistent pattern uh, pertaining to meal timing. So if you have any time-dependent nutrition strategies, macro factor is very well suited for that. And since I mentioned time-restricted feeding, which is often um, falls under the umbrella of intermittent fasting, Macro Factor also allows you to uh, specify fasting days. So if you are doing any type of fasting-related protocol, Macro Factor can be used to facilitate that as well. So uh, in summary, Macro Factor is your diet sidekick. It provides all the guidance, all the support, all the analytics that you need without infringing on your ability to make your own decisions uh, and chart your own course toward your fitness goals. So if you want to learn more about Macro Factor, head over to macrofactorapp.com. The app is available for Android and iPhone devices. Uh, so that does it. Thank you for joining me for another episode of the Stronger by Science podcast. Part two of this discussion will be coming shortly. If you happen to be celebrating any holidays this time of year, uh, the Stronger by Science family sends the best possible vibes to you and your loved ones. Thank you for listening to the Stronger by Science podcast. If you enjoyed the podcast, be sure to sign up for our free newsletter to get concise breakdowns of relevant research, as well as 28 free training programs for all skill levels and all schedules. We hate spam just as much as you do, so we'll only email you when we have something really interesting to share with you. You can sign up for the free newsletter at strongerbyscience.com newsletter, or just go to the Stronger by Science homepage and click the free programs button at the top. If you want to join in on the Stronger by Science podcast conversation, be sure to check out our Facebook group and our subreddit. The links for both are provided in the description of today's episode. Finally, please remember that we are not medical doctors or registered dietitians. So before you make any changes to your exercise or nutrition habits, be sure to check with a qualified healthcare professional. Once again, thank you for listening, and we will be back soon with another episode of the Stronger by Science podcast.